how to start. Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to Creative Principles. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. In this podcast interview series, I'll be speaking with writers, directors, actors, musicians, chefs, and various other types of creatives as we bridge the gap between creativity and productivity. Here we'll be discussing the habits, routines, and lessons that help promote a successful creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to subscribe on SoundCloud or iTunes. Luke Davies is a poet, novelist, and screenwriter known for Lion, Candy, Life, Beautiful Boy, and now Hulu's Catch-22, starring George Clooney and Christopher Abbott. His books have won many awards, including the inaugural Prime Minister's Literary Award for Poetry. A fan of Catch-22 from an early age, it was Davies who originally had this idea to turn this into a series. Finding a way through the craziness of the novel, however, was a major challenge. Joseph Heller's story takes place during World War II, specifically from 1942 to 1944. It follows the life of Captain John Yossarian, a U.S. Army Air Force's B-25 bomber. The novel looks into the experiences of Yossarian and the other airmen in the camp who attempt to maintain their sanity while fulfilling their service requirements so they, may can, so they can eventually return home. In this exclusive interview, Davies discusses removing the clutter to adapt the story for Hulu, writing emotional beats for actors, the psychology of a character, taking the audience on an emotional journey, and why your treatment should be engaging along with the equal importance of discipline and rest as a writer. If you haven't already seen Catch-22 or read the book, there are some potential spoilers in this interview. And if you enjoyed this interview, please visit iTunes or SoundCloud, give us a rating, or share it with friends on social. That is the best way to kind of let this podcast grow. There's also a print version of this interview on Creative Screenwriting's website. And if you enjoyed this interview, join thousands of viewers for the new YouTube series, Creative Principles, which dissects new films, series, and more. Just search for Creative Principles on YouTube or visit creativeprinciples.live. Here is our conversation with Luke Davies. What led me into writing was discovering Steinbeck's Cannery Row at 13 years old and uh, having my, my entire universe open up into new realms. Um, it was like a magical moment, magical experience that, was, that made me think, oh, this is what I want to do with my life. I want to affect other people the way this book just affected me. So it was like life-changing and... Um, yeah, and I was a precocious little weirdo, but at that moment, I knew, okay, I'm, I'm a writer. <laughs> uh, but then, so then jumping forward and, uh, four years, I had to study Catch-22 for, uh, you know, for the final year of high school and um, wrote an essay, got my first ever 20 out of 20 essay. I loved the book so much. I was so enthusiastic about it. I just fell in love with the book and with Yossarian and um, jumped forward another two or three years and I was studying English literature at Sydney University and Joseph Heller 
was doing some kind of book tour of Australia, and he did a lecture a lecture at the English department at Sydney University. And I lined up after that lecture and got him to sign my high school copy of um, Catch Twenty <laughs> Two, and then and then jump forward thirty six years, and um, Richard Brown, one of the exec producers, uh, came to me and David Michaud and said, "Have you got you know?" We just did a great thing with Catch with um, True Detective season one, and now we're looking for other things. And have you guys got any ideas? Um, we all three of us had this meeting. Richard had an idea, David had an idea, and I had an idea. It was a super preliminary, pleasant, informal conversation, throwing ideas around. And at the end of that meeting, um, I said, "Oh, I've got one more idea." You know, I, I I loved this book when I was a, ki- a kid, uh, and how come no one's done an adaptation of Cash 22 in 40 years or whatever it was since the Nichols film? And that's how it began. Richard and David looked at each other and said, "Oh, I, yeah, I think I read that book once." A lot of people, you know, you know, it's like the the phrase is so deep in the public in the popular consciousness that people don't, you know, people have an idea of it, but it's one of those things where a lot of people may or may not have read it. Plus, when you're at high school, right, you basically avoid reading most of the books you're supposed to read. So there's that too. But anyway, um, that's what that's how it began. Richard very quickly went off and discovered that Paramount had the rights, had had, had the rights since the novel was published in 1961. And um, <laughs> the rest is history. <laughs> I got a... Um, we, we we got a deal to write the a development deal to write the the pilot and the Bible, and then um, and then the agony began. Nine months of um, just trying to make sense, just just trying to find a way through the craziness of the novel, and find a way to make choices about what would be a what would be a clear, clean kind of TV narrative that made sense and that had emotional journeys for the characters um, that that was not like the the book in the way in which the book was very kaleidoscopic but in a very literary way personally I think that's partly why the film is sort of chaotic and messy but not not in a great way it's like because I think in a sense Nichols is imitating or Nichols and Buck Henry the screenwriter are imitating um that kaleidoscopic chaos of the book. So then that's, that was my, that was the journey of writing. It was just gradually getting um, rid of a lot of the clutter that was literary and finding the stuff that was very cinematic that would make the story hold together. And in the end, that turned out to be um, six, six, episodes, six hours was what we felt would do justice to it, to telling the story properly. And also reducing the 40 characters who are basically in the novel to, it's kind of like, you know, 10 or 14, you know what I mean? It's sort of, depending on how you define how big the characters are. So how do you start to, you mentioned uh, looking for the cinematic um, ideas, but, you know, what are some of the fears going into a project like this? Like I know people have... um, avoided making like Catcher in the Rye into a movie because they're afraid to 
to make that transition from novel to film in some degree? What were some of the fears and how did you get past those for something as classic as Catch-22? Yeah, it really is just those fears are real and it really is a face your fears kind of momentum. It's just about um, um, trying to have uh, clarity about what to retain from the master, Joseph Heller, of the great scenarios and the great dialogue and what to take from Heller and run with it and expand. Because a lot of the stuff um, that is new in the series um, is, is not completely invented, but there's a lot of sections and sequences that come from a single sentence in Heller um, or a single paragraph that Heller deals with very quickly in a kind of abstract way. And you're like well, that's actually really great dramatically. Or you're like, well, in, in, um, on the screen, because, it's so, because the experience is so visceral, it's a different part of your brain experiencing storytelling on the screen. You have to tell the story in a different way. In, in, your, in the literary part of your brain that reads a novel, you can take in a big chunk of information that covers a transition that is a period of time, and you can accept it. But in your gut, when you're watching something on the screen, you can't accept it if it's just a leap where the the, the leap was not fleshed out for you. And, and two examples are just, uh, you know, there's like one sentence in the novel says, when Kraft died over, I forget the name of the town. Um, and two things happened. One is I, I did a lot of compressions. We, David Michaud and I, did a lot of compressions. We would take two characters and make them one because we needed less characters and because sometimes two characters did a thing that was kind of half good but not really meaty enough to justify their existence in a series. But if you could take elements of the two characters and make it one, that would be helpful. So we, we put these two characters, Kraft and Nately, together, and they become the character Nately. And uh, the, this one-sentence mention of, of uh, Kraft's death became Nately's death scene. And the, the elements of Nately... Um, which were Nately's, which uh, were stronger, were Nately's friendship with Yossarian, uh, or contentious friendship, and Nately's relationship with a prostitute in Rome. And so it was like, okay, this is the arc, friendship, um, conflict between Yossarian and Nately, um, um, Nately's relationship with the prostitute, Nately's falling in love with the prostitute and wanting to marry her and then destiny seeing to it that Nately dies on, on a particular mission. And so the death scene also had to be written, which is um, the the end of episode four is this kind of extended Nately death scene. So that's one example of taking something, taking a seed from Hella and expanding it into a lot more. And then the other one would be also in episode four by coincidence, uh, it's really mentioned in a couple of sentences, maybe a paragraph, that Milo takes Yossarian on on his kind of um, mercantile trading trip of the Mediterranean, he goes to various places to sell and buy different things, and it's very manic, and all that's mentioned in a couple of sentences. And so for us, it was like, this is a great opportunity to expand that thread that kind of metaphorical thread about war, the relationship between war and capitalism that is so deeply in the novel, 
uh, by actually showing what's going on here with the mad mind of Milo Minderbinder as he travels through the Mediterranean building his empire. And it's extremely heightened comedy, i.e. non-realistic, that section, Um, but it also has a serious point to make underneath it. What what so yeah when I when I watched the trailer um, it reminded me of was well, you're advertising it as one of the kind of George Clooney serious topics but with a lighter tone or kind of almost uh, satirical in ways is this the a lighter version of something you've written like I've I've actually recently watched Life Lion and Beautiful Boy in the last um, few months and they're they're relatively heavy as far as um, what's happening kind of is this a lighter tone for you for this new series. The the thing is that the novel, people, everyone remembers the novel for the wild, let's call it black comedy. The fact is also that the novel gets really dark around chapter 35. There's 44 chapters in the novel, and the final kind of 10, uh, the tone really changes. And in a sense that we have recreated some of that same darkening in towards in episodes five and six in particular, but in the final two episodes. And so, yes, part of the challenge was how to blend the wild extremes of the uh, comedy and the darkness, terror, horror. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's certainly lighter than Candy, my first the first film I wrote, uh, Life, I mean, I don't know, Life, my disappointing, that's a disappointing film to me. It doesn't really, something, you know, the film doesn't work to me. It should have been something else. And But I, I, there's aspects of it that I like. Um, and Lion and Beautiful Boy, Lion in particular, I, I'm very, very happy with, and Beautiful Boy I love a lot. Um, yeah, this is... But no, uh, that's a really good question. No one has asked me that question. Um, do I see this as being lighter? Not, no, not really. I mean, yeah, the trailer gives that sense that um, um, it is a comedy, and, and it is a comedy. It is fundamentally a comedy, but it's but definitely dark comedy or black comedy is the expression that I would use. Satirical dark comedy, um, and. And I think the lightness is offset by a very uh, a deep underbelly of a of a message about the insanity of war and the relationship between war and capitalism. But also, you take war away from it, and what I also think it's about is something that we are all experiencing right now, increasingly in our daily lives, which is a sense of frustration and powerlessness. In in the face of our relationship with every single bureaucratic structure that we deal with in the world, that um, is nonsensical, irrational, and drives us all crazy. Oh, and also, <laughs> and also makes us wake up every morning with this kind of shared anxiety condition about what happens next in the world. You know, so sorry, that's a kind of long-winded answer, but it's a great question. It took me a minute to think about. Huh. Is it is it lighter? It's I feel I feel it's not exactly. Did you approach it kind of the same way? Like let's talk about um, Lion and Beautiful Boy. There's there's 
um, essentially just a handful of characters that are kind of working with each other to figure things out. And it's Catch-22 more, as you kind of just mentioned, like um, a handful of men versus this giant thing they can't really control. Is that more kind of the approach of it? That's a great description of it. I think an interesting difference is that um, it's really just Yossarian's uh, he seems to be the only guy trying to figure it out with with a level of desperation that exceeds that of all his, you know, young companions. Um, and that's, um, and I guess that's the fact that in the novel, the novel is, uh, you know, so focused on Yossarian's plight that we don't, that, that that in the novel Yossarian's kind of psychology is the deepest psychology that we get access to. But that's the great thing about film and television is that the minute you're seeing an actor on the screen, even in a smaller role, you have access to that actor's psychological interior. Like in other words, if the novelist chooses not to spend time telling you what, you know, what major, major or, Colonel Cathcart is thinking, then you don't get that access. But in a, but on the screen, just by having an actor on the screen, you're getting that access to what is going on for them. And I love the that the beautiful richness of that is one of the things that's just really exciting about writing dialogue for actors and seeing what they do with it emotionally. But um, yeah, it, it's basically. I think it's um, Yossarian's kind of is the singular focus of the series um, in terms of he's trying to work out how to solve these problems and they are fundamental. It's a fundamental life and death problem. How do I keep myself alive? And you get the feeling that his, his little, his buddies are a bit more um, accepting of their powerlessness. And Yossarian is definitely not accepting of his power. I know this is a, a collaboration miniseries. Did you approach it the same way when you were working on the Bible? Um, did you look at it as instead of a two-hour film, a six-hour film? Or were there other things that maybe Hulu kind of had you? You know, I know all networks are different now and all streaming services. Did you kind of have to have, you know, cliffhanger parts every 60 pages? Or what was kind of that process like? Well, it, both are correct. It's um, we absolutely treated it from day one as um, uh, like a six-hour movie, but at the same time, we absolutely knew that it had to be a six-hour movie with six climax, <laughs> like one hour apart or forty-two minutes or whatever, however long the episodes turn out to be. You know, um, so and that was a really new experience for me. Was working out in the beginning was working out how many episodes will there be. And then the very next question following on the heels of that was what are the climaxes, the so-called cliffhangers that end each episode? And in, um, in one, let me think about this one, uh, one, in episodes one, three, and four, those are deaths. They're, they're either, you know, deaths or, People go missing. I mean, part of the way I've always looked at the whole series is that Yossarian's journey is about uh, loss, continual loss. He just keeps losing all of the people who have who mean something to him in his life, one after the other. 
uh, including the flyers and including towards the end Nurse Duckett. And um, although maybe that's a spoiler, maybe that not that she dies, but anyway, uh, yeah, I'll try and avoid spoilers <laughs> uh, just in case you use it. Yes, um, Yossarian's journey is a journey of loss as well as a journey of panic, fear, bewilderment, frustration, anger, you know. Tell me a little bit about how you kind of approach the, these various movies you've worked on. I know that um, Candy is kind of a personal story. Beautiful Boy was a personal story based on other memoirs. Uh, Lon's obviously uh, very personal, but uh, about um, someone outside of your own life. It feels like you take a lot of responsibility when you choose projects. What kind of attracts you to to a premise or idea? What leads you to different stories you want to tell? It's really simple. It, it, it's um, if I'm able to have the good fortune to have some power over my choices, and it doesn't always feel like that. It just sometimes feels like my career has weirdly randomly tumbled forward into however it tumbled forward, but. But the simple answer is that um, I respond to films and I want to make films in, in which you experiencing you experience an emotional journey um, for the for your characters that the story has emotional weight to it um, because for me I guess that's the that's the stuff that I seek in my own film-loving habits is to find the stuff that moves you um, moves you emotionally. Um, and so I, I think that's the basic answer. I just want I just want to tell stories that have um, that have that sense that this is an amazing emotional journey for real characters. Um, and, um, you know, in which they, in which they're transformed in some way by this, by the circumstances of the story. Are, are most of these works also like therapeutic in a sense? Do you feel different after you're finished with the script that you've kind of invested so much uh, time and personality and then personal anguish with? Yeah, definitely. I always feel um, I feel that I put my heart and soul into the stuff I work on through many, many drafts and um, through you know through the very interesting and intense process of feedback loop with the various other people who are in a project, producers and directors, and and in, and sometimes eventually actors when you have those conversations. Um, and I feel um, um, well. I feel I, there's that sense of when it's really over and it's out of your hands, like it's in the hands of the director now, and the film is being made. There's that sense of um, uh, satisfaction, and uh, you know, I feel transformed by the satisfaction of having done all that hard work, and now it's now it's out of my control. Uh, I like that feeling. As a, you started kind of as a, as a poet and novelist, do you still view uh, the screenplay in the same sense? Like, is every word precious to you? How much time do you kind of go back and tweak dialogue? And how do you, um, do you see it in rhythms and things like that as well? 
Yeah, I hope I like to believe that some of that stuff is instinctive about um, my background as a poet and about uh, seeing dialogue in terms of rhythms. Um, And yeah, I take care to make my screenplays read really well, or even my treatments, hopefully, read really well in terms of and maybe also that comes from my background as a novelist, that you get good at telling stories and you want to give yourself an extra chance of moving, getting a project actually happening. And so it helps if your treatment, for example, is a very readable story that the reader can get lost in for 20 minutes or whatever that treatment takes to read and, and ditto for the screenplay. But like they're very, very different in the sense that a poem or a novel is the end result of the process itself. That is the thing, the so-called work of art that a person is reading and consuming, whereas a screenplay is absolutely just this kind of strange blueprint document, like almost a technical document for a whole lot of other people to make sense of, and not just directors and financiers and producers, but production designers and costume designers and obviously actors in particular. So it's got to um, – it's a weird technical document, but I like to think that it's possible to write a screenplay in a way that you're seeing the, the, the story, the movie on the screen inside your brain when you're reading it and you're seeing it without glitches, without moments where you're like, I don't actually understand what just happened there. So, so that's what I try and do, avoid the glitches that take you out of the story which I've seen in screen. Sometimes screenplays are really hard to read and and that screenplay does itself no favors. If you're spending half your time going, huh? I don't, I don't understand what I'm seeing right now. So, yeah, I don't know. There's, I find the skills are very different, but yes, of course I, I try to make them coherent and grammatically clean and give them some poetic kind of feeling, even in the, not just in the dialogue. I mean, it's really, really important how you describe the just the, the the action descriptions in prose of what's going on, what the what the actors are doing in the frame. Has anything about your writing process for screenplays changed over the years, or is there any piece of advice you wish you had had, kind of back in the beginning? Yeah, it's definitely changed. I have organically, as I've grown older. Um, I've just gotten better at being more disciplined. That's what I didn't really have. I had a more restless relationship with my writing in my 20s and even in my early 30s, um, like a real hot, cold, on-off switch thing going on, and which felt out of my control. But I have come to realize it's not really. It's the the on-off switch thing. When it's off, that's... I learned is to do with my fears and resistance and um, kind of self-sabotaging mechanisms. Fear, really, like this, nothing will happen here. This won't be good enough. I'm not good enough. And that the, so the, the solution that I learned the hard way was about setting up very, just really methodical disciplined work structures where I just, I, two things. One is I just work really solidly kind of like the office job and I try to be measured about it not crazy and not burn the candle at both ends and you know I still do sometimes have those deadlines where I'm suddenly doing a crazy like 
up for two days or writing till 6 a.m. kind of thing. But I try to avoid that these days. And the second thing is I'm really, really big on deep preparation. So, like, I don't I don't leave uh, things unexplained or I don't write short treatments that are, like, full of bullet points. I really try and flesh out the story. And because then I find that when you're actually writing the script itself and you've got this detailed framework, it makes it more, it frees you up more in the creative space to actually write, um, to actually find exciting discoveries. Does that kind of help you with like the resting phase? So we often talk about discipline, but like after you put everything on the page for something like Beautiful Boy, I would imagine you needed some time almost away from writing altogether. Was there a break or did you go right into something else? Uh, I, I definitely, I'm a little bit, you know, I, I definitely try to carve out breaks for myself and I don't do it enough. I tend to, they tend to, you know, I jump into some other thing or there's other, there's the beginnings of something else or I don't do it enough. But, um, yeah, when I do manage to carve out that space, I love that. It's that sense of reward, you know, like, okay, I'm going to switch my brain off for, well, you know, a month. That would be a beautiful luxury. But I try to get back to Australia every year for Christmas, New Year, family, and I and just jumping in the ocean, jumping at Bondi Beach several times a day. That is my idea currently of a well-earned paradise. Can you kind of, if you feel comfortable, can you elaborate a little bit on what you meant by kind of life is not, uh, the film, the screenplay life not working? Was that something out of your control or something that you wish you had done differently? Um, yeah, no, the experience, I mean, I just specifically talked about life, that's all, uh, about life, the movie. Um, um, I, I, I wish that Anton Corbin had um, checked in with me as um, um, as to what's what's the meaning of the you know like I I, I was ready and available to answer those questions. Um, what's what does this mean or what does that mean? Um, and I felt that I felt that I wrote a really good script that was a kind of um, a thoughtful buddy movie road movie. Um, about fame and mortality and, and and male friendship. And I felt that the movie that you see on the screen is a slightly shallower movie about a cool photographer and, and two kind of impenetrable uh, people. I mean, what was weird that year was that, that the year that film came out, um, another film that came out that year was called, I think, The End of the Tour. It was a really small film. Yeah, yeah. David Foster Wallace. D- David Foster Wallace. And it was unusually similar in the story of it to life. It was about a kind of uh, prickly j- journalist kind of guy. It- it's about two guys who meet for professional reasons, a journalist and a superstar, uh, or an about-to-be superstar, uh, which is exactly the same about in life, the photographer and the about-to-be superstar. Um, and they will both die after the somewhere after the movie and it's about how this prickly situation turns into a kind of little road movie and a friendship and i i thought that movie was so beautiful it broke my heart because it was like oh my god that movie they did what 
what my script, what my what I thought my life script was. But um, there's something odd and patchy about the film, um, much and always. It's got really lovely things in it about my about life. I mean. So that's all I meant. That's just that thing of, um, yeah. Yeah, I said to you, it's a nice experience when you let it go. But, of course, there's also that anxiety of like, well, I hope they understand it. <laughs> I think that's just part of the course of, I think you just have to make peace with that, that it's all, everything moves forward and you keep working and you look forward to the next thing if the last thing didn't work out. Thank you for tuning into this show. If this is your first time listening, please log on to iTunes or SoundCloud and give us a rating. Providing a rating or sharing content is one of the best ways to help the series grow. Make sure to also follow or like us on your favorite platforms like Instagram, Facebook, or the new YouTube series we've started. And check for daily updates over at creativeprinciples.live.